Let's pray. Father, it is our delight, as always, to come humbly before you and to bring ourselves underneath your word, a sufficient word, a perfect word given to us as really a love gift we know from you. We thank you for this book. We find in it the same as the psalmist found, life, a sweet truth for us like honey from the honeycomb. We find in this book, Lord, you. We find your revelation. We find you. We find the revelation of your Son. We find the revelation of your Holy Spirit. And we find in this book all that we need for life and godliness. And so we come now before you, Father, and we ask that you would be near us, that you would draw especially near us as we gather underneath this book. We pray that it would come to life for us, that we would see Jesus with new eyes, that our love for him would soar, and that our propensity towards self-righteous Pharisaism would be shunned, and that we would run to Christ that we would bow to Him and find in Him all that He has promised to be for humble, repentant sinners. And Lord, we pray that You would open our eyes to behold wonderful things in Your Word this morning. Amen. Well, I invite you to turn in your Bible with me back to the Gospel of Mark. We'll be looking at the first six verses of chapter 3 this morning. As we saw last week, the theme of this section that starts... In chapter 2, in verse 23, and goes all the way through chapter 3 and verse 6, the theme of this section is the lordship of Jesus, now, particularly His lordship over the Sabbath. And really, you could extend that to His lordship over the law, and we'll see it extends to His lordship over all of life. Now, if there is anything hard for humanity to accept, it's the lordship of Jesus. Men will allow Jesus to be anything, really, to be a good teacher, to be a moral reformer. They'll allow him to be a revolutionary, an influencer, and you could go on, but they will not allow him to be lord, master. Even many who profess to be Christians will allow Him, at least in their own mind, to be Savior, Helper, Provider. But they don't allow Him, as it were, to be the Lord over the details of their life. It's human nature to try and hold Jesus off at arm's length in certain areas of life. But Jesus will not be a partial Lord. We'll see, that doesn't even make sense. Right? He's all or nothing. And you either, and you have either done that this morning, you have either bowed to Jesus as the all-encompassing Lord of life, or you have positioned yourself this morning in your heart as a rival to His Lordship. And you say, well, I'm not a rival to His Lordship. Well, if you have not fully bowed to Him, in every arena of your private, public life. If there's one area of your life where you say, I'll be the Lord of that, Jesus. You take care of these other things, I'll take care of this. You have positioned yourself as a rival to His Lordship. And as we saw last week, Jesus will have no rivals to His Lordship. The day will come, When he returns, and every knee will bow to him and confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And we know that begins now. And so it's true. We either all are in a position of bowing to Jesus' all-encompassing lordship, or we are opposing him. Where, Where are you this morning? Well, what we see in our text is not a model of humble submission to the Lordship of Jesus. But we see the proud exaltation of self over and against the Lordship of Jesus by a group of men called the Pharisees. 
Remember, the Pharisees were the religious leaders of Israel during Jesus' ministry on earth. And these were men who had effectively buried the Word of God under generations of tradition. They had conflated their traditions received from the elders with the holy, perfect Word of God to such an extent that apparently, as we see in, in both accounts here, that they could not tell where the Word of God ended and their own tradition began. So, they see Jesus and His disciples in chapter 2, verse 23, walking through a field, and they see that the disciples begin to pluck heads of grain, and they rub the grain heads together and, and begin to eat, and the Pharisees are outraged. They... Uh, at least from their perspective, the disciples are doing, according to verse 24, what is not permissible on the Sabbath. Now, we saw last week that the disciples were not breaking God's law. Whose law were they breaking? Right, They were breaking the Pharisees' law. And what we saw is that essentially in these two sections, ending of chapter 2 and through the first part of chapter 3, is that two rival interpretations, applications of the law have emerged. And so, the one, on the one hand, you have the legalistic view, traditional view, advanced by the Pharisees. And then, in opposition to this, is Jesus' view, which we saw last week, is actually totally in line with the Old Testament and with the spirit of the law itself, which Jesus summarized as the main commandment or the undergirding foundational commandments being love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then the second, to love your neighbor as yourself. Now the Pharisees' law, their legalistic scheme is the reverse of all that God laid out in the Old Testament, essentially. We see them living sort of the inverse or the reverse of what God actually wanted for His people. And they had erected themselves, exalted themselves as the leaders of God's precious people. And they had burdened them so heavily with minute regulations, so much so that, I mean, no one would even know what to do. What can you do on the Sabbath based on the Pharisees' regulations? Well, now, what we saw was in verse 25, or rather, we saw in verses 25 to 28, we saw in 23 and 24, we saw the rivals to Jesus' lordship. And then verse 25 to 28, we saw that Jesus really lays out an argument for his own lordship over the Sabbath. Right? And this is against the rival interpretation of the Pharisees. And last week we got all the way to verse 28, but as I thought we would, we ran out of time. So I hope this morning to cover 28 and then get into chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. All right, that's my plan. And I think with the Lord's help, we can do it, all right? So why don't you stand with me, and we'll begin reading. Actually, we'll start reading in chapter 2 and verse 23 and make our way to chapter 3, verse 6, all right? Mark chapter 2, verse 23. And it happened that he was passing through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples began to make their way along while picking heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need? He and his companions became hungry. How he entered the house of God in the, in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the consecrated bread, which is not lawful for anyone to eat except the priests. And he also gave it to those who were with him. Verse 27, Jesus said to them, The Sabbath was not, or rather, the Sabbath was made for man. And not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Chapter 3. He entered again into a synagogue, and a man was there whose hand was withered. And they were watching him to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. He said to the man with the withered hand, Get up and come forward. And he said to, to them, Is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath? to save a life or to kill. But they kept silent. 
after looking around at them with anger, grieved at the hardness of heart, he said to the man, stretch out your hand, and he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately began conspiring with the Herodians against him as to how they might destroy him. You may be seated. can see that verse 28 functions really as kind of the hinge between both of these stories. As I mentioned, verses 25 leading up to 28 really form an argument that Jesus makes as to why He is the Lord of the Sabbath. And it begins with what we could call in what we called last week an appeal to Scripture, and that's verses 25 to 26. Jesus, in those verses, he doesn't go back to Jewish tradition here to make his case or to defend himself against the Pharisees. Where does he go? He goes to the Bible. He goes to an example from the Old Testament where David and Ahimelech and the bread of the presence all come to play in demonstrating that necessity sometimes, according to the Old Testament, necessity often permits the suspension of ceremonial regulations in order to fulfill other laws. In other words, David in these verses, 25, 24, 25, 26, David and Ahimelech were not chastised by God for somehow breaking uh, the ceremonial regulations regarding the bread of the presence. No, because they acted out of obedience to other commands, it was clear that at this moment, the, the regulations regarding the bread of the presence were somehow suspended and they acted according to the spirit of the law and met David's need. Ahimelech, rather, met David's need. David then takes the bread and out of love and, and out of an act of really obedience, he then provides bread for his uh, men. And we saw that both David and Ahimelech were being faithful to the spirit of the law and demonstrated, represented, modeled, not... Uh, a bad example, but actually modeled the kind of heart of God, that God has towards people in need. It's similar to like the ox in the ditch. Right? You can't go around lifting up oxen on the Sabbath. But if your ox falls in the ditch, there's an exception. Love demands that you act for the ox. How much more does love demand that Ahimelech feed David? Right? And then we saw in verse 27 that Jesus made an appeal to biblical reasoning. And because of time, I'll just jump over my notes here. The point here was that Jesus was saying the Sabbath itself was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. Meaning that because of God's love for His people, He gave them the gift of the Sabbath. The Sabbath was not meant to be a burden on God's people. It was meant to be a blessing for them. A day of rest and day of focusing on the Lord and worshiping the Lord and fellowship with other believers. Okay. Now we should note here that the Pharisees had actually done the opposite of what God had called them to do. Sabbath was meant to be a blessing for God's people, and the Pharisees had effectively turned the Sabbath into a day of drudgery. Remember, just a few sections ago, they were moaning about why the Jesus' disciples were not going around fasting. It seems like the Pharisees wanted everyone to be sad and upset and be burdened by unnecessary regulations. Some of these unnecessary regulations sound like I'm making them up, but they weren't made up. You can find them in the Mishnah. For example, you can tie one knot on the Sabbath, according to the Pharisees, but don't you dare tie two knots. That's off-limits. You can carry grain, of course, if man's got to carry grain on the Sabbath, but just don't let it be more than a goat's mouthful, okay? You can sew a stitch if you need to, but don't you dare sew two stitches. You can't even tear a piece of fabric on the Sabbath, right? These are some of the regulations that the Pharisees had burdened God's people with, and Jesus acts in such a way here to really demonstrate the true spirit of the law. That God's priority was not that His people be burdened down with the law, but that they enjoy the Sabbath as His blessing to them. 
It's a day of rest. Now, we finally come to verse 28. It took all I had not to preach that sermon last week again. And we come to verse 28. And this really is the culmination of Jesus' argument. I want us to look at it for a minute. Look at verse 28. So, or consequently, the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Now this, as I said last week, would have been the most shocking statement of all to Jesus' rivals. They would hear Him saying, He is the Lord of the Sabbath, and they would have understood what He meant. To be the Lord of something means to be the possessor and disposer of it. The Lord is the one who is in charge by virtue of possession. He's the master. He's the owner. So to be Lord of the Sabbath then was to be the one who possessed the Sabbath, who owned the Sabbath. And thus, as a consequence, to be the one who has final authority over the Sabbath. In other words, Jesus is effectively saying here, it doesn't matter what you think, Pharisees. You've positioned yourself as my rival, but it really, in the end, it doesn't matter what you think. Because I am the Lord of the Sabbath. I'm the possessor, the owner, and therefore the absolute authority over this law. So what you say doesn't matter, and the only thing that does matter is what Jesus says about the Sabbath. Now that's a true uh, truism today, right? The only thing that matters is not your position about the Sabbath or non-position about the Sabbath or your position about X, Y, or Z. The only thing that matters is what has the Lord said. And so here we are, and Jesus makes this radical statement, and He ties it, notice in verse 28, He ties this lordship to a certain phrase that should be familiar to you as students of the Word of God. And that phrase is, the Son of Man. Who is the Lord of the Sabbath? The Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. Now, very literally, the phrase Son of Man is a Hebraism, which means a human being. It doesn't mean anything spectacular. It just means a human being. However, you can't say that the phrase Son of Man here simply means human. To say that humans are now Lord over the Sabbath defeats Jesus' point. So when he uses the phrase son of man, he means something more than merely being a human. By the time Jesus was on the scene, the phrase son of man had developed something of a technical meaning in Judaism. And so I want you to go ahead and turn back in your Bibles to Daniel 7. And I want to show you just a couple of verses there and, and show you what Jesus meant when he said the son of man is Lord of the Sabbath. Now you remember the book of Daniel is a prophetic book, looks forward and deals with kings and kingdoms of Daniel's day, but also days in the future. Chapter 7 in particular moves way beyond Daniel's time to an established, the establishment rather of an eternal kingdom which will demand the submission of all other kingdoms. It will be a kingdom... Uh, to end all other kingdoms, as it were. And so it really then, Daniel 7, points to the coming of the Messiah, even as it intermingles with certain historical applications for Daniel in his day. So, I hope you're there, Daniel 7, 13 to 14. Let's look at verse 13. Daniel writes, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a... Son of man. That is, someone in human form. Right? I don't know about you, but it's not very often that you see someone in human form in the clouds. Okay? This is a vision, spectacular. One like a son of man was coming, and he came up to the ancient of days. That is, God the Father. Ancient, not that he's old or frail, but ancient that he's old and wise. All right, this is the point. He's the Father. And this Son of Man figure was presented before the Ancient of Days. And to Him, verse 14, was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom 
that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and His kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Now, this is kind of like a hub text. The New Testament picks up all these themes and, and takes them a little further all, every, all over the New Testament. We see this, okay? So there are all these phrases as we're reading this. You're probably thinking, oh, that sounds like Revelation 5.9. That sounds like this. That sounds like that. This is because this passage was key. And by the time Jesus comes on the scene, this phrase, Son of Man, everyone knows to use that phrase is connecting back to the prophecy of Daniel. And so whoever the Son of Man figure is in Daniel, he's in the form of a man. All right, we see that in verse 13. He looks like a man. But he's able to do things that only God can do. Right through the clouds. God alone can do that. And then in verse 14, he receives power and authority and glory and a kingdom from the Father so that every tribe, nation, and tongue will serve him. And his kingdom will last forever. Now all of that is utterly familiar to us. But I want you to notice something here. There is, in this passage, a mingling of language between the divine and human that is very striking and startling. It leaves you thinking, is this, a, is this God or is this a man? Right? And often when you read the Gospels, you think, is he a, a man or is he God? Right? That's because this is what we see in the messianic figure. He would be a, a man, meaning that he would express solidarity with all humans. It would also be divine, meaning that he would have absolute, utter authority. And so it's not surprising then when we see the phrase Son of Man used elsewhere in the New Testament, specifically in Mark, that it's usually tied to Jesus' solidarity with humanity. He identifies with us in our weakness, in our sin, in our pain, in our sorrow, in our struggles. Or... It's tied to his absolute authority. Either solidarity, typically, or absolute and utter authority. And that's what we saw, if you flip back to Mark chapter 10, we saw there where the phrase Son of Man was tied to Jesus' messianic authority to do what? Mark 2.10. Forgive sins. The Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. And then we see it in verse 28 of chapter 2. The Son of Man phrase tied to the authority that Jesus has over the Sabbath itself. And really, uh, by extension, over the entire law. So, fundamentally here, Jesus is claiming, don't, don't miss this. Right? Fundamentally here, by using the phrase Son of Man, Jesus is claiming to be the Messiah the Son of God, the, the, the promised Davidic ancestor, and to be divine himself. There's a lot of ammunition for his rivals at this point. Okay, So he, he is claiming, and we could sum it all up, he's claiming to be divine in this moment. We see that in John 5, 18. If you look at the event in John 5, that actually happened before this event. The Pharisees know exactly what Jesus means when he says he's the Son of Man. And further, when he claims to have authority over the law itself. To say you are the Lord over the law means you own it. Who owns the law? Whose law is the law? It's God's law. It's His law. And to say it's mine is to say I am God. That's really the ultimate trump card. I don't know if you were a kid. I mean, you've all been a kid at some point. That's true. Um, I don't know if you ever played the game Rock, Paper, Scissors. Did you ever play that game? Um, great game. I remember in elementary school when I would play that, there would always be some kid. You know, he would be playing Rock, Paper, Scissors, and you know what he would do. He would do it, and then at the very last minute, he would say, God. You know, God beats everything. And when I read this, verse 28, I thought, wow, this is the ultimate trump card. <clears throat> here he is in this debate with the Pharisees, his rivals, and they're all worked up. And here he is, cool, calm, collected. Right? We know he's been praying. We know he's in the Word. We know he's meditating 
he's fellowshipping with the Father, and he says, essentially, I don't care what you think. I am God. I'm the master of the Sabbath. I wrote the book. Okay? That's really powerful. All right, and that takes us into chapter 3, where we see Jesus' lordship not defended like we've seen in verses 25 to 28. We see it demonstrated. All right, we see the demonstration of Jesus' lordship. So look with me at verse 1 of chapter 3. He, Jesus, entered again into a synagogue, and a man was there whose hand was withered. Enters the synagogue probably on the next week. We don't know, the text doesn't say, but it makes the most sense that Jesus and his disciples would have been going to the synagogue, they make it to the synagogue, and the Pharisees are watching, they're plotting, they see what Jesus is doing. Jesus makes this comment about being God, the Lord of the Sabbath, and then they have a week to mull and figure out, what are we going to do to this guy? How are we going to get him? And so we come, chapter 3, verse 1, with a week having elapsed, most likely. And they come into the synagogue, and there's a man there with a withered hand. Literally, his hand is shriveled up. It's dried up, essentially useless or deformed. Luke, interestingly, who, who eyes these kind of details that the other gospel writers seem to miss, who was a, Luke was a physician, Luke tells us that it was his right hand. Luke 6, it's his right hand that was shriveled up, meaning that he would have had a difficult time making a living he would have had a difficult time in life. His right hand probably was his main hand. And so here he is, a man with a shriveled hand, deformed hand, sitting in the synagogue with his Jewish contemporaries. Now remember, when Jesus goes to the synagogue, it's not just a sprinkling of people in the synagogue. There's a full place. Right, everyone is itching to hear Jesus preach, teach, to be around him. Uh, the synagogue with Jesus was an exciting day. All right? And then verse 2 says, the Pharisees, or they rather, they, the Pharisees, were watching him to see if he would heal him, that's the man with the withered hand, on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. All right, now there is a lot of information in that verse. I just want to point out two things to you. First, notice how the Pharisees were treating this man with the withered hand. They were watching him, watching Jesus, to see if Jesus would heal this man. So for them, this man was effectively a test case. Right? He, he was just an experiment. He may, and I would argue this, that he, he was probably even planted in the synagogue by the Pharisees themselves to see what Jesus would do. And we don't know that for sure, but it's clear that they have no love, these Pharisees have no love, no affections for this man. They don't care about him. They have no sympathy, compassion for him. They're simply using this man to get what they want. He is bait in their trap. That's how they're treating humans. That's how they're treating this man who's made in the image of God. Now there is a principle here. This is not just an incidental detail. There is an important principle here that you need to see. Self-righteousness Self-righteous people, like the Pharisees, don't love other people. They use them. They don't love them. They use them to get what they want. Everything they do is a show in order to get what they really want. Read Matthew 5, 6, 7. What do they really want? Matthew 23. They do all that they do to be praised by men. It was Charles Spurgeon, I believe, who once illustrated the, the reality that we see in this text with a story about a gardener, a king, and a carrot. You may have heard it before. It goes like this. Once upon a time in an old kingdom, Spurgeon said, there was a gardener who grew an enormous carrot in his garden. Now this man loved his king, so he came and presented the carrot to the king, saying, this is the best carrot my garden will ever grow. Receive it as a token of my love. Now the king discerned his heart of love and devotion and saw that he wanted nothing in return for the carrot. This moved the king, and he then gave the gardener far more land than he currently had for his garden. So the man went home naturally rejoicing. Now there was a nobleman in the court 
who overheard this conversation. And he thought to himself, if that's the response the king makes to such a small gift, what will he give in response to a great gift? So the next day he brought the king a fine horse, saying, this is the best horse my stables will ever grow. Receive it as a token of my love. But the wise king discerned the nobleman's heart. And in response, he just received the horse and dismissed the giver. When the king saw the look of confusion on the man's face, he said, The gardener's gift was a gift indeed, out of love. But you are simply trying to make a profit. He gave me the carrot, but you gave yourself the horse. That's self-righteousness. Using people simply to get what I want. Using them as a stool to get higher. Using them as a theater to display my own goodness so that others can see and clap and praise me. Using them to display your own generosity before others. Right? You, there are myriads of ways that you can use people to get the praise of others. But the point is that you use and abuse people, the self-righteous person, especially if they don't fall in line with your agenda. You cut them off, throw them out. You have no use for people who will not advance your own praise and your own agenda. And that's exactly what we see here. It's a scary thing that these were religious men. Pharisees had no care for people. No care for this man. No love for him at all. No desire for him to be God's kind of man, to grow, to be healed. I mean, here is Jesus who can take care of his problem. They don't care. They only care about themselves. It's scary. It's very scary. Lord, help us. Keep us from that. But here they are. No care for him. And they're so accustomed to using people, not loving them, that it pains them nothing at all to manipulate this poor man to accomplish their own selfish ambitions. It's really a tragedy. And so here they are, their bait is in place, the trap is set, and their objective is to catch Jesus and to end their rival's um, meteoric rise. Actually, verse 2 says they wanted not to just catch him, but to accuse him. Or bring a charge against him. That was their goal. They didn't want to learn from Jesus. They knew everything already. What are they going to learn from Jesus? We know all this. When you find yourself saying that, beware. All they wanted to do was bring Jesus essentially in chains before the Sanhedrin to try him for blasphemy, for claiming to be God, and for his uh, pitiful Sabbath-breaking, their case against him. But what they've actually done, in a striking way, is set up uh, the scene, set a scenario where Jesus is now perfectly set up to demonstrate all that he said in the previous section. He's going to demonstrate that he really is the Lord of the Sabbath. The Pharisees think they're in control. And they think they're in charge of the moment, but they're not. Actually, Luke 6, this parallel account, Luke 6, 8, says that Jesus knew what they were thinking. And he knew this was a trap. He knew exactly what was going on. He was not only the Lord of the Sabbath, he was the Lord of that particular situation. And he was the Lord of their minds, right? He was the Lord of them, Lord over all. And he was in complete control of the situation. This is like a microcosm of his life. We'll see that, I think, in closing. But here we go. The stage is set. For Jesus to demonstrate now his lordship. And that's point number two, if you're tracking in the handout. Point number two, the demonstration of his lordship. Now, in order to see the way this unfolds, you need to sort of think about the synagogue. Get a picture in your mind of what it would have been like. All right, The synagogue would have been a stone building, square in form, with seats surrounding all four sides, and on one end, there would have been a seat called Moses' seat. Right? We, we, there's archaeological remains where you can look and see Moses' seat. And this is where the rabbi or the teacher would sit. And he would 
teach. Often, sometimes, he would walk around as well. But this is the setting of this synagogue. Now, you want to think something like a small gym. A small gym with bleachers all around it. That's what we have. Four rows, probably, of uh, bleachers. These were stone bleachers. Probably not as comfortable as you, you know. Now, there were stone bleachers. And we know from uh, the rest, or the last two chapters in Mark, that there would have been an immense number of people wanting to be in there. So this is crowded, huge crowd of people, probably pouring out of uh, the windows and doors. And Jesus, according to Luke again, uh, Jesus was teaching. Luke 6.6 6 tells us that Jesus is actually teaching at this point. He's not just there as an attender. He's teaching. And so the crowds were there. He's in the middle of the synagogue. When he looks up, at the Pharisee's bait, the man with the, shri- the um, shriveled hand. And he says to this man, get up and come forward. Now, how would you feel if right now I said, Cameron, get up and come forward? He would feel okay. <laughs> you wouldn't want that, right? Because that means maybe you're going to say something, I'm going to do something strange. Uh, you don't want that. I don't want that. Um, but here's this man, and everyone's looking at Jesus, and all of a sudden Jesus says, you, get up and come forward. Or the ESV says, come here. Literally, the passage says, come down into the middle. Come into the middle. And the man, probably shocked that Jesus has called him out of the crowd, comes immediately down into the middle of the synagogue, right? He can't say no to Jesus. And then in verse 4, Jesus looks at the man, or rather he looks at the Pharisees, it seems, in verse 4, and he asks them a simple question. Is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath, to save a life or to kill? It's an easy question. These men, though, were so concerned with what was permitted on the Sabbath, and they probably not thought about this simple question in a long time. And they were infatuated with how much grain you could carry on the Sabbath. How big is a goat's mouthful? And those are the sort of things they were thinking about. Um, and Jesus shocks them with the simplicity of this question. Can you do good or can you do bad on the Sabbath? Can you save a life or kill on the Sabbath? Now, the irony here is striking. Jesus is not simply shooting from the hip. What are the Pharisees doing? They're planning to kill. And we see that in verse 6. They're plotting to do harm. And what they're going to use as a catalyst to do the harm is Jesus' act of goodness and mercy. In healing this man, as we'll see in the next verse. They should have known this. This is not difficult. A child would have been able to answer this. Should have been an easy for one, easy one for them to answer. But notice verse four, at the end of verse four, rather. What do they do? They kept silent. Why? Well, they don't make a sound. And as their silence filled the room, you can imagine the tension in the air, the weight of the moment. Everyone is hanging on Jesus' word. They're already doing that. And now you have this tense moment where rival views of the Torah, the law, are coming to a head. And Jesus asked such a simple question that surely everyone is thinking, okay, go. <laughs> what do you, go tell him, tell him, Pharisees. You know this answer. I know this one, you know. Um, But they're silent. They don't make a sound. And Jesus looked at them. Well, look at verse 5. He looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. He looked around at them. He's in the middle of the synagogue. They're probably surrounding him. He looks around at them, grieved, angered. Interestingly, this is 
unique, a unique detail in the Gospel of Mark. None of the other three Gospels have this, that Jesus was angry at them. And it gives us really an insight into the Lord's heart uh, and what He thinks about the sin of hard-heartedness. What does He think about hard-heartedness? Now, the Greek word translated hard here literally refers to the formation of a callus or the petrification of something. Like wood that becomes mineralized and eventually, under the right circumstances over the course of time, can become stone. We call that petrified wood. The hearts of these men had petrified over time and hardened. As a result, note this, as a result of their infatuation with themselves. Who are they always thinking about? What are they always wanting? They want praise. Matthew 23, they do all that they do in order to be recognized by men. They do nothing from the heart of love, heart of love to Jesus or to the Lord. They do everything to be seen and praised by others. The heart of self-righteousness. Their system was entirely oriented around themselves so that they could amass the most praise, the most recognition, the most honor before men. And so everyone looked at these men and thought, wow, they are the paragons of righteousness. They are holy men. They've got it together. And Jesus knew better. It's easy uh, to be righteous on the outside. It's easy to do uh, works where you get immediate recognition. You get your heaven now, instantaneously. You get praise and recognition in the moment. You know, in that sense, it's easy to share the gospel in front of other people. When they look at you and think, wow, he is a faithful evangelist. It's easy to give help to others when they're with you. And you get some immediate praise from them. That doesn't justify you being mean in the presence of others, so don't do that. But the point here is that often the things we value the most are are somewhat easy to do. The hard things are the things of the heart. And Jesus here looks at these men who on the outside are beautiful and highly decorated and praiseworthy by all accounts. And he says they're kind of like beautifully decorated caskets. Which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they were full of dead men's bones. because they were so consumed with themselves and the praise and the glory that came from men, they neglected their hearts. And as they did so, their hearts became callous and petrified. Augustine said that sin curves us in on ourselves. It's true. Your default is to be curved in on you. To think about priority number one, yourself. A life lived that way for self, inwardly focused, will no doubt produce a hard, calloused heart that is grievous to the Lord. Let me give you a little bit more specificity here. When this word hardness is used uh, in the New Testament, it's always used as a metaphor. And going a little bit further, it, it actually has the idea not of just hardness, but of dullness and insensibility or obstinacy. I want you to listen closely to this. It has the idea of dullness, insensibility, or obstinacy, or even stubbornness that manifests itself in an unwillingness to learn. I already know that. You came here this morning, you heard me say Mark chapter 3, and you said, I just studied Mark last year. He's in Mark. Oh, we already know this. Be careful. What he's talking about here is a mental hardening that refuses to obey God's clear word and thus is best described as the petrification of the heart because from the heart flows the springs of life. You do what you do because of what's going on in your heart. 
and the hard-hearted person has gotten there by a perpetual, unrepentant hard-heartedness. And so over time, his heart has become calcified. Now that's exactly what we see here with the Pharisees. The words of Jesus, the simple question, bounces off of them kind of like sound in a cave. They're so stubbornly fixed on their own agenda, their own praise, their own selves, that they're unaffected. They're unaffected by the living Word of God that's right in front of them. How scary is that? How sober should we be? Proverbs 4.23, Guard your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. Guard your heart. Why? Because the human heart easily calcifies. And we see that with these religious people. I hope you see how dangerous the Christian life is. How dangerous it is to have freedom of worship. How dangerous it is to come and hear the word taught every week. How dangerous. It's a dangerous thing. We have to be on guard. How dangerous it is to study this book every week and come before you to teach. Or to teach the kids or teach your children. Right? This is an occupational hazard. We have to be careful. You can be in the Word day in and day out. You can have consumed Scripture your whole life. Yet the Word of God has not softened your heart like the farmer's plow on hard ground. But the Word has year after year only served to harden you. To compact the soil of your heart so that the Word simply comes and bounces off. Well, there's a lot more I could say about that. But I just want, to, want you to see that the way you get a hard heart, this is how you get it. It's a stubborn refusal to comply fully with God's demands on your life. You want a hard heart? Well, leave those little places in your heart where you don't want God to be the Lord of. That's the sure pathway, the sure recipe for hard-heartedness. Don't comply with God's demands on your life. Read Scripture and think, oh, that doesn't apply to me. Or, oh, God will understand that I don't do that. If you partially obey long enough, you can deceive yourself into thinking that you're actually obeying. Partial obedience is disobedience. You can delude yourself into thinking that you're more righteous than you actually are, and the ultimate consequence is actually Not salvation or growing in godliness, but a stubborn, proud heart that grieves and angers the Lord Jesus. Now, you can do this in a million different ways. You can read the Bible to your family, but refuse to really love them and lay your life down for them. You can make sure that you're up on the family devotional, but neglect your wife and your children. You can make sure that homeschooling is done perfectly, but neglect their souls. You can lead your family in worship, but hypocritically neglect to obey Jesus in the rest of your life. You can harden your heart and the heart of your children, really, by taking them to church, but not showing any interest in them during the week. By preaching sermons, but living a life that's contradictory to all that you're saying from the pulpit. Richard Baxter, I love this quote. He said, don't unsay with your life what you say from the pulpit. That's true for all of us. Don't unsay with your life what you tell your children, what you tell your wife, what you tell your coworkers. Now, all of this comes down to this same principle, the principle of self-righteousness that says, I will do it my way. I reject the righteousness that God gives me through Christ, and I will go about seeking to establish a righteousness of my own. And really, fundamentally, it comes back to simple submission to the Lord Jesus. Simply bowing to His Lordship. If He comes and says, this is the way, 
you say, yes, sir, let's go. As long as you kick against him and try to establish your own way of salvation, your own way of parenting, your own way of of loving your spouse, your own way of, of living your single life, go ahead and be the Lord of your own life in those ways, and I promise you that that is the pathway to hard heartedness. The only way to gain a soft heart is to humbly come underneath the Lordship of Jesus, to hear His Word, to sing His Word in the fellowship of other believers, to believe His Word, to trust His Word, and to do His Word. To stop short of obedience is to lead to hard-heartedness. All right. Let me read this. Being a wise hearer who responds to the commands and promises of God's word with faith and obedience. That's the way to prevent a petrified heart. Be a wise hearer who responds to the commands and promises of God's word with faith and obedience. You do that, you won't have a a petrified heart. Now, all of that really makes me think of Hebrews chapter 3. I invite you to flip over there with me really quickly. Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12. Take care, brothers, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Take care that there not be in you an evil, unbelieving heart. Come together as a church. Encourage one another so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Sin is deceitful. Sin hardens the heart. So take care, brother, sister, young, old. Take care to guard your heart Be sure to actively love and obey the Lord from the heart because to fail here is to dig your own spiritual grave and to be a pretty casket. You don't want that. It's a tragedy. Okay. Now let me just say a couple more things here back in Mark. How does Jesus feel about this sort of self-righteous, hard heart how does he feel about that? Well, verse 5 says it has two effects on him. It grieves him and it angers him. The worst thing a Christian can do is grieve or dishonor the Lord. Right? The worst thing you can ever do is dishonor God to grieve him. And this is what the Pharisees have done. When Jesus looks upon their self-righteousness and when he looks upon a self-righteous, proud heart now, it grieves him. It causes him pain. The word here means to feel hurt and grief with someone at the same time. And it it has, in the original language, it has an intensifying preposition, which we could translate as to be deeply grieved. Verse 5, he was deeply grieved at their hardness of heart. That's what self-righteous pride does. Grieves the Lord. It It gains his opposition. Secondly, Jesus responds to hard-heartedness with righteous anger. That's what we see in verse 5. And although Jesus was certainly angry at other times in the Gospels, this is one of only two places, at least in Mark, where we see that he was explicitly said to be angry. It's striking. The other place is where the disciples don't let the little kids come to him. It was the cold, calloused hearts of the Pharisees that aroused the anger of the most compassionate, gracious, merciful God. Friends, you don't want to be numbered among them. I don't want to be numbered among them either. All right, so here they are. Pharisees, proud, stubborn, hard-hearted, and here's Jesus looking at them grieved, angry at them for their sin. And at the end of verse 5, he instructs their bait, he instructs the man with the withered hand 
to stretch out his hand, and immediately, the text says, his hand was restored. That's all it took. Simple obedience, no show, the opposite of all that the Pharisees were typically doing, nothing elaborate, no ringing of bells, no sounding of chimes. The man simply obeys his instructions, and he's immediately healed, immediately restored. And you can imagine the excitement and the energy in that crowded synagogue, can't you? In a moment, this man's strength is fully restored, and it happens in front of all of them, and you can almost hear the gasps. You can almost hear them gasp at what they see. It would have been clear, verifiable, immediate, unlike contemporary claims to the miraculous. And all at once, Jesus has fully demonstrated what he claimed in chapter 2, verse 25 to 28, namely that he was indeed the Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus has not only won the argument, but he's clearly demonstrated that he is the one who has authority over the Sabbath, but he also has authority over the law, and he also has authority over the limbs of every man. He can do with them whatever he pleases. All right, so we have to move on. Notice the last point, verse 6, the final response of Jesus' rivals. The Pharisees went out and immediately began conspiring with the Herodians against him as to how they might destroy him. You would have hoped to have read, and the Pharisees went out and repented and were restored, forgiven. No. No. They had seen a miracle and had heard a message from the Son of God incarnate. It was an opportunity for their hard hearts to be softened, but amazingly, they remain as cold as ice. And actually, Luke's account says they were filled with rage. So, on one hand, they were cold as ice, but on another, they were burning with anger. Why? Why are they so angry? What is that? Well, who's getting all the glory in that moment? Yeah. Who has been disproven? Who has lost the argument? Who's shamed in front of all the religious people? They have no care for anyone And they're totally blind to the reality of what God is doing in that moment because they're so infatuated with themselves. They're curved inward. And so they go out immediately. And the the image really is them kind of storming out. They're angry. Get out of our way. We're leaving. Everyone is wondering what in the world is going to happen. They dare not touch Jesus then. I mean, the crowds probably would have descended and done away with Pharisees in that moment because they love Jesus at this point. So they storm out of there and they go to a group of people called the Herodians. It's verse 6. The Herodians were a Jewish political party that supported Herod the Great and his successors. Now, you need to know that they were politically opposed to the Pharisees and theologically opposed. They were on different ends of the spectrum. But somehow a common enemy unites them and they go to the Herodians And these were the people who were the politicians. They were like the aristocrats of the day. They had the power, the influence. The Pharisees have the plan. They have the plan. And really from verse 6 where it says they uh, were conspiring with the Herodians as to how they might destroy him, the implication there is they already have a plan. They've already written it up. They had it in their pockets in the synagogue, and they were, their, tra- their, their trap was set, and now it's set, we got him, let's go. And so they conspire as to how they might destroy him. The Pharisees have the plan, the Herodians have the power, and so at this point, verse 6, they officially begin to plot the death of Jesus. Now here's the question, did the Pharisees win the day? Well, no, you know that. They don't win. But they think they win. For a long time, they think they win. 
Right? They go about conspiring and, and moving all the pawns and getting everything into place and, and really planning and, and, and really persuade God's, I mean, the people of Israel, persuade them to do what? To crucify the Messiah. Now, that's some persuasion for sure, but the Pharisees found a landing ground in the wicked hearts of unregenerate, unregenerate people, that's for sure. But what we've seen in our text is that Jesus was sovereign and Lord over this situation, right? He was in control the whole time. He knew what was unfolding. This is just a a small picture of the larger betrayal, arrest, crucifixion of Jesus. I love, turn with me to the book of Acts. I want you to see this. My point here, I just want you to know, you know this already, but Jesus was in charge. Jesus was in charge of this. John 14, Jesus, or John 10 rather, Jesus says, I, no one takes my life from me, I lay it down. By all appearances, it looked like Jesus' life was taken from him. It looked like the Pharisees win. And actually the disciples thought the Pharisees had won. Until what? The resurrection. And then the argument was settled. Right? The shriveled hand being healed, the argument settled. That's just a small, small uh, microcosm of what was coming when the resurrection would vindicate the Lord and show that he really was the Lord of lords and King of kings. And we see this in Acts 2. Peter preaches a wonderful sermon after the resurrection. And I love verse 22. He says, Men of Israel... Listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. That's kind of an underhanded blow, really. You know. You saw all of these signs that were God's attestation of his son to be the king, the Lord of lords. This man, verse 23, delivered over by the Pharisees. No, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. You nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. You see, who was in charge of it all? God. He knew what he was doing. He was sovereign over even the the greatest act of evil ever carried out, the crucifixion of Jesus. And friend, he's sovereign over your struggle as well. There are a million applications we can make of that. But he is sovereign and in charge. If he was sovereign over this act of evil, he's sovereign, good, and wise in the orchestration and permission of what you've suffered as well. Now, verse 36, the culmination of all of this. Peter, you can just just sort of sense the momentum as Peter is preaching. I mean, he's been vindicated too, right? I mean, everyone was thinking Peter was crazy. And now all of a sudden, this man rises from the dead, and he appears to all of them, and he gives them his Holy Spirit, and Peter is a new man, and he just preaches this wonderful sermon, and he's, he's being led, and the Spirit of God is at work in verse 36. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Know it for certain that He is both Lord and Christ, the Lord and the Messiah. He is both. He is the Lord. Now, what is our response? Peter, what do we do? Verse 37. Now, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart. The hammer hit the heart of stone. And so they say to Peter, and the rest of the apostles. Brethren, what, what shall we do? We killed him. We, we succeeded. Our plot played out exactly as we wanted it to. What do we do? This was really the Son of God. And Peter said to them, verse 38, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. What sins? plan that you 
um, hatched to kill the Messiah. And that's the immediate context. You can be forgiven of that if you turn and repent of your hard-hearted Phariseeism. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You won't just be forgiven. You'll be gifted. We be blessed. So there's hope for us hard-hearted Pharisees. We can all be forgiven. Uh, it, it, Jesus is, is not now coming back and saying, look what you did to me. No, this is the time for all of us who have been hard-hearted to repent and to return to Him. Verse 39, for the promise is for you and your children. You who crucified the Lord. It's for you and all who are far off, as many as the Lord will call to Himself. And with many other words, He solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. So then those who had received His word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. No doubt among them many who had hatched the original plan. So friend, you may be sitting here thinking, wow, that was hard. Uh, I feel the hardness of my heart. I felt it this week. I felt it, and it's so scary to feel it, isn't it? I mean, we don't want that. We don't want to be the kind of people who turn our eye to those who are in pain and only look to people who need help when other people are around and praise us. We don't want to be those people. And so we know we've been them. We know we've done it. And what does God call us? Well, he calls us to repent, to say, okay, God, with your help, I won't be that. I will hear your word, believe your word, trust your word, and do your word. With your help, I will submit fully to the lordship of Jesus in every arena of my life. All right? Let's pray. Father, thank you for the wonderful gift of your word, of course, but thank you, Father, for the wonderful gift of the forgiveness of our sins, that even though you are angry with hard-hearted Pharisees, the anger of Christ is also tinged with grief and compassion. And we thank you, Lord, that you are patient with us as we tend to drift into Phariseeism and you continue to call us back. And Lord, we praise you that not a one of your sheep will ever be lost, that your power to save and to keep is far beyond anything we could ask or think, and we bless you for that. And we ask, Lord, that you would help us as a church to be marked by the soft, tender-hearted Christ, that we would be like him in every way. Lord, we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.